hopefully I'll last through, through the study this evening. Verse 12 of chapter 3 of Isaiah, O oh my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. O oh my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the directions of your path, the direction of your paths. Um, that exclamation, O oh my people, if we take the rest of this psalm, it is about uh, an invitation to repent. And um, again, it is the Lord's call to his altar. What is his altar? But his altar is the place of his redemption, his provision of forgiveness for those who would seek it. And he's simply asking the people to come. Now he says, oh my people, it's, it's an exclamation of, of God's great compassion, even in the midst of his judgment. Um, his outrage, if you will, that's been expressed uh, up to this point uh, becomes concern. This is the Lord's heart of compassion for those of his own who are being mistreated by the leaders of Judah. Their oppressors are children. It's interesting that, 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 that the prophecy here, the vision of the Lord points this out. Romans 6, 16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? In other words, what, what the Lord is saying through Isaiah at this point is, your big slave driver are irresponsible, wanton, spoiled brats. They're nothing but children in their, in their way of doing things. They're looking out for themselves. Think about um, who the most selfish, who the most selfish people on the planet are. They're infants, <laughs> Right? They cry when they're hungry. They cry when they're, when they're wet, uncomfortable in any way. And what do they expect? They come to expect that someone will come to their rescue. And, and, uh, and in many respects, um, the, the words of the Lord here through Isaiah are saying is, are, are that you are giving reinforcement to the selfishness of your leaders. Now, um, it's important for us to understand, again, what the Apostle Paul writes, we are slaves to that which we obey. And if we are slaves to our own, uh, our own inclinations, if we are enslaved to our own wants and desires, that's truly what we will seek. And we will soon become bound by them. Um, he says, those who guide you lead you astray. The word guide here means um, uh, that which is straight or to be straight, um, to be level, to be right. Those who should be leading you in the right way, he is saying, are actually leading you astray. 
This is, this is the task of a true leader, to lead in a way that is right, to lead you in a way that leads you to um, a straight path rather than a crooked path. But Isaiah says those who are supposed to set you right actually are setting you wrong. They turn you from the path, literally, they turn you from the road that you are on and they swallow it up. That's the idea of, of being led astray. They are swallowing up that which is right. The path, that, the path or the direction of the path that you are on is swallowed up. Now, the old established signposts of right living and sound society are gone. They are totally gone as if someone had swallowed them up. And verse 13, the Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard and plundered the poor in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Note, God here has great compassion for his people. Again, verse 12, oh, my people, that is the expression of a, a compassionate heart. But he does not rush to judgment. Rather, he contends. Now, the word contend means to grapple with, to, to uh, wrangle with, to hold controversy over, to wrestle with. God does not rush to action. In everything, he, he, he operates in everything with legality and with justice. That is the pattern that he set forth uh, in, even in Genesis 18, where uh, Abraham is asking, uh, speaking with the Lord about the fact that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham do? Do you remember? He, it's, it's as if he is bargaining with God. But God, if there are... If there are 50 righteous people, would you destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 50 righteous? Well, what about 40? What about 30? And, and so on. And the Lord's response is no. If there are 50, if there are 40, if there are all the way down to 10, I will not destroy. And that is the expression of God's sense of justice. Now, Abraham comes before the Lord in verse 25 of Genesis 18 and uses these words, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? And truly, that is the Lord's heart. And more than justice, God is holding out for the possibility of repentance. He's holding out 
in hopes that the people will repent. That's what uh, Isaiah chapter 3 is all about. Second Peter chapter 3, we, we read these words in the epistle of Peter, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord one day that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but patient, patient toward you, not wishing that any to, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's God's heart. And that's what's being expressed here in Isaiah chapter 3. God does not rush to judgment. Rather, he contends with them and he waits for their repentance. Only after he contends with his people, then he enters into judgment with the elders and the princes, with the leaders of the people. Then he speaks with this imagery of a vineyard in verse 14. And it's symbolic of the, of the care in which the Lord expresses his choosing, delivering and settling his people as his delight. These, but these leaders are not only stripped, not only, have not only stripped the vineyard, but they've plundered it, according to this, the vision that the Lord gives to Isaiah. They've not only stripped it clean, but they've plundered it. And this is speaking of God's chosen, his very intentionally planted people. Note in verse 15, the word crushing. It means to crumble. Very specifically, to beat into pieces. And it's always a metaphor, it's always used metaphorically in the Old Testament uh, to speak of the severest maltreatment. So the leaders here are, have treated those they ruled as a crop to be reaped for their own self-enrichment. I'm wondering if any of us have recollection of seeing that kind of treatment in our past or maybe in our present. People being treated simply as a commodity for the enrichment of those who um, employ them. That is where God's judgment is landing. Abusive leaders will face God's judgment. And so the personal takeaways here is... Um, uh, you can see toward the bottom end of, of the, uh, the uh, section of chap chapter 3, God is compassion, even in, even in the midst of his judgment. And he does not rush to judgment, but waits. He waits for repentance. And in the end, abusive leaders will indeed face God's judgment. That is his final straw, if you will. Now, let's go to verse 16. Here, 
um, the vision takes a turn to the women of Judah. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing step and tinkle, and tinkle the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescents, ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, fingers, rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff that they've piled on to add to their own sense of pride. Verse 24, and it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn. And deserted she will sit on the ground. And we're going to add verse 1 of chapter 4. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying, We will eat your own bread and wear our own clothes only let us be called by your name. Take away, take away our reproach. Verse 16. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud. The word proud there um, means to be haughty. To be haughty. Because this prophecy here in this section is against the women of Zion, it, uh, it, it, it follows immediately after the prophecy against the men of Zion, especially those who are chosen to be leaders. And it implies that the haughty women are co-conspirators, co-conspirators with the men in giving oppression to the helpless and exploitation to the poor along with their corrupt husbands. Now, the women show their sin, this sin of pride in, in a very special way. They walk with their heads held high and with seductive eyes and go along with mincing step and tinkle the bangles on their feet. In other words, their body language gives them away. They flaunt their haughty spirit for everyone to see. It's important to note that God's word does not, does not discriminate between genders, men and women. Both the men and the women of Zion stand on the common footing before the scrutiny of God. While the expression of their sin differs, the source of their sin is the same. 
corrupt men and haughty women are equally guilty of pride. The sin that God absolutely abhors. They used in every manner the movement of their body and the ornaments that they put on to be seductive. God's judgment will cause their bodies to attract attention, however, in a different, for a different reason. For sores and for baldness. It should be noted that baldness, a shaved head of a woman, uh, at this time was seen as a symbol of disgrace. Verse 24 Note that God's judgment is often the opposite end of the spectrum of our prideful pursuit. I think this gives kind of a new dimension to the words in chapter 2. If you want to turn back there, chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Again, in verse 24 of chapter 3, the penalties are of pride are these. Again, they, they put on the head of their, or they stand on the head, the pursuits of the prideful. They're given putrefaction instead of perfume. They're given rope instead of a belt, a plucked out scalp instead of well-set hair, sackcloth instead of fine clothes, branding instead of beauty. Not only are these penalties, but they are the natural consequence of pride. Think about it. Putrefication. Pride ends up with a foul smell because it is nothing but self regurgitated over and over and over again. Rope. Pride ends up binding us, enslaving us to our own lusts. A plucked out scalp. Pride ends up stealing any beauty that we may have. It ends up exposing our frailty. Sackcloth. Pride ends up in mourning because it brings ruin to our personal lives and very often our public lives as well. Branding. Pride ends up enslaving us and marking us as its possession. It's important to understand that pride, pride is a deceiver. The return on investment in pride is worse than nothing. It's a debtor's prison. I don't know if we in our culture, fully grasp the gravity of a prideful life. 
In fact, in our culture, we tend, we tend to elevate pride as though it is a, um, a, uh, an attribute worth pursuing, worth having. We stand in our pride and we, we exalt in our pride. We celebrate our pride. But when we look at the word of God, God is against the proud. Note the word against. God does not bless pride. In fact, he stands in opposition to it. And if we are going to, if we are going to be pleasing to God, if we are going to prosper it all in the spirit, pride has to go. I'm not certain, again, that we in our culture can, uh, can fully appreciate this. I would ask that you seek the Holy Spirit's discernment on this and the searching of our own lives and the searching of of, of our perception of others because God will bring down the proud. Verse 25, your men will fall away by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. Take note that the word that is translated as your is suddenly singular here. Previously, it has been plural, speaking about the women of Zion. But here, it is translated singularly, speaking of Zion itself. And he continues in verse 26, And her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. It's important to know that the gate is the center of the life of the city. And lament, the lamenting gates is the city's broken heart, overwhelmed by the mourning of the list of casualties. Then chapter 4, verse 1, For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. T take away our reproach. Even in the end, take note that even in the end, the stench of pride is still present in the focus of these women. Take, their cry is to take away our reproach rather than pleading for mercy and forgiveness, acknowledging their sin. Isaiah's vision foresees the day when the same women of Zion who played with the men will now fight over a few male survivors who are most likely the dregs of society and will beg them for marriage, even at the sacrifice of the support that Jewish law requires of a husband. The fall from the, their haughty looks to utter shame is absolutely complete here. Judgment has bottomed out when the women of Zion are willing to do anything simply to cover their shame. 
So what are our takeaways from this section? Number one, pride is a deceiver, a liar, a serious liar. And the return and investment in pride is worse than nothing. It's worse than no return. It's actually a debtor's prison. It sends you to prison. The inevitable end of pride is shame. So, what is our, what is our response? The, the response is this warning. Don't allow pride to get a foot in the door. If you do, it will plunder your whole life. Isaiah chapter four. We've been through verse one. Let's pick it up with verse two. We have a new section here. A new section speaking of the remnant that is promised and prepared. Verse two, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivals of survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord was when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. It's important to understand that God has not changed, even though we've come through this section of, of uh, describing the, the great judgment of the Lord and the 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 horrible end of the proud, prideful, God has not changed his redemptive purpose for the children of Israel. Isaiah has not lost hope for his own people, and neither should we. God's original vision is, is, um, is set up for us in the beginning of chapter two, verses two through five, where he speaks of the house of the Lord. Let me, let me just read it again. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as a chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and the nations will stream to it. Do you remember this? And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law 
will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Come house of Jacob and let us walk in the light of the Lord. That is God's vision for his people. That's his vision for his people. Now, I, I remember a couple weeks ago, we, we covered this and we, we, um, we noted the fact that, that um, this idea of, of uh, uh, pounding plow, uh, swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks is God's way of doing things. But our human way of doing things is to prepare for war. Understand that God's, God's vision here is for his people. The reality is, is that we do not, um, we cannot claim that our society is his people. God is speaking of the fact that he is Lord Almighty. This is a theocracy. He and he alone is Lord. Not a democracy in which we live, in which humanity makes decisions. It's not even, it's not even a, 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 any other form of government like socialism or whatever. This is, what is described here is a theocracy in which God's people are giving him his rightful place as Lord. Now, let's go back to uh, chapter four. In uh, verses two through six, God ends this vision with his plan for Jerusalem after, after the suffering in being overrun by their enemies and being sent into exile. It's interesting that the vision ends after the judgment, ends after the punishment. Verse two, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel again the survivors are those who are left after the judgment this is god's view the remnant that survives is a branch of beauty through whom his redemptive purpose will yet be accomplished god's plan is for redemption. And God's plan for redemption will be accomplished. That, that has to be uh, set forth here as the, the, the resounding truth that we view all of this judgment through. God's redemption will be accomplished. Now, many interpreters of this passage um, uh, understand the branch and the fruit as looking forward to the messianic age. 
and, and it, it's very reasonable to do so. Um, um, the Messianic uh, age speaks of fertility and the abundance of the, the earth's produce. Joel, the prophet Joel, um, in chapter 3 writes, And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. It is, it is a picture of absolute um, glorious abundance. Now, it's interesting to me that Judah is the southern part of, the, of, of Israel today, right? And if we look at, at Judah and Phoenix, we're pretty much on the same latitude. And we're not at the same elevation, but we are at the same latitude. The reality is that the, the present day um, condition of Judah is much like Arizona. It's arid. It's very, very dry. And you don't see every stream flowing with water. In fact, you see uh, many places um, empty streams. In, in that part of the world, they call them wadis. And it it is there, they are there uh, simply because when it does rain, it may pour. And the water, it uh, just runs off the ground because the ground is so dry, it, it, it has encrusted and the water rushes off like it does here. When we get rains in the, in the monsoon, we have a lot of flash floods. And I, I, I remember having... Uh, having visitors come from the east and uh, I take them up north and a asking these questions about these, um, these uh, uh, we go over a bridge and we, we see the name of the stream and, and they, they look at that and there's, there's no water in it. There's no stream and they, and they are scratching their heads. Well, uh, again, I, part of this little side note is for us to get the picture that when when the messianic age comes judah is a fertile ground and the brooks are flowing full it is uh, a, a place of glorious abundance now it's important to note here that the old testament's um, view of creation uh, coming out of Genesis includes the curse. Now, the curse happened uh, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin and banishment from the garden. And in chapter 3, uh, verse 17, God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. That sense of toil is reversed in the, in the Messianic age. 
So just as sin brought a curse on the earth, causing it to yield goodness only through great sweat and great toil, the day will come when the curse will be reversed. I'm liking the sound of that. The curse will be reversed. I like that. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of that day. There, the apostle John uh, recounts his vision. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and he shall they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Won't that be glorious? And there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Amen and amen. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And the new creation will explode with bounty. That's the picture of the messianic age. And that's what our expectation is upon the removal of sin and its curse by Messiah. Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, writes in uh, chapter 3 of the removal of sin, the iniquity, and the enjoyment that is experienced by being joined with, quote-unquote, the branch. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. I, and quote, I, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and his fig tree. The branch, the branch here is the messianic title. Jeremiah also speaks of it in chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as a king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land here in Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 is the earliest occurrence of this title as a messianic title the title the branch the sama is used to point out the Messiah's kingly office and his priestly office as well. It's, it's um, however, it's important to note that in itself, the branch also speaks of a family tree. It speaks of the Messiah's ancestry, his heritage. To Jeremiah, he is David's branch, and he traces his ancestry back 
through King David. Isaiah 11.1 speaks of the same idea, but using different words. You could turn there if you want. Um, There Isaiah writes, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. How familiar is this? We, we, We listen to this almost every Christmas. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Now, back in chapter 4, verse 2, in, the, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Indeed, it's speaking of the, the, uh, the remnant, but it's also speaking of the Messiah. And note that here, it is the Lord's branch. It is the branch of the Lord. In chapter 11, it's, it's a shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse. In Jeremiah, it's the branch of David. Now, so we have both, we have both a human lineage through David, But here in Isaiah chapter 4, he is the branch of the Lord. There is also a divine lineage, a divine connection, a godly connection. We continue with verse 2, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. The fruit of the land could indeed refer to the abundance returned to the land in the day of the Lord. But here we need to take note that it's also associated directly with the branch of the Lord. It's associated with the branch of the Lord as jointly providing this adornment for the survivors of Israel. So it's it's reasonable to understand from this verse in chapter 4, verse 2, that the fruit of the land is also indicating the idea of the human origin of the Messiah. In the same way as Isaiah 53 points out, out of a root of dry ground, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Now, we have here this beautiful picture of the Messiah being both human and divine. It's it's a very, very curious observation. Jesus, we know, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. He was fully God and fully man. And I believe that what we see here in Isaiah chapter 4 is the foreshadowing of that reality, the incarnation of Christ. And it's important for us to note as well at this point that the divinity, both the divinity and the humanity of Christ are necessary for the completion of God's plan of redemption. 
You see, full payment for sin, the sin of humanity, is accomplished by the death of God's Son. How can God's Son die apart from also being fully human? God is the definition of life itself. How can God's son die and pay the penalty of sin, except he also be fully human? Take note, Isaiah 53, in fact, I invite you to turn there. Because what we see here is this um, incredible vision of the costly sacrifice. But he was pierced through, verse 5, for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Yet each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. It's important for us to understand that redemption is possible only by a sacrifice able to satisfy the law of God delivered only through the grace of God. And what do we have here but the gospel? It's the good news. And this is the vision of redemption in the context of the day of the Lord. Now, again, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. In the day of the Lord, sin comes to an end. In death. But that is not the last word. Verse 3, it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, everyone. How in the world, how in the world can that be? Because we've just been through this terrible uh, description of the sin of pride in Jerusalem. How are the guilty made holy? The men and the women of Judah, of Zion, merit judgment because of their pride. But they will experience Chapter 3, verse 16, cleansing from the same Lord, acting in the same judgment and fire. Verse 4, 
when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from their midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Cleansing? Yes, cleansing by judgment. Righteous judgment requires death. Paul writes, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, right? And the death of the Messiah provides the cleansing payment for that sin. It provides our salvation. And so we read the rest of Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Restoration of the remnant is brought about by their cleansing. Not only by their cleansing, but by the creative act of God. Look at verse 5. And the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over their assemblies, a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. The word canopy here is chuppah. What does that mean? That is the description of a wedding canopy. Verse 6. There will be a shelter to give shade by the heat of the heat by, of the from the heat by day and a refuge for protection from the storm and the rain. There's two guarantees that are given here. He guarantees his unfailing presence for his people in verse 5. Despite their sin and though and even through their judgment God has never left them. He's present with them. And through our sin and our suffering and our exile, God guarantees us his unfailing presence. He will never leave. He will never forsake us. And the second guarantee is this. He guarantees his unceasing protection. Verse 6, a canopy over Israel that will protect them from heat of the day and the storm of the night. God's promise is given to the remnant, to the branch. Now, it's important to note that God does not guarantee his protection from natural consequences of our sin. His guarantee is that we will not suffer the fire or the storm of his judgment. If we are among the holy, those who are set apart, those who are forgiven, made holy by his righteousness. So we have here bookends of hope. On the one side, we see God's vision of the house of the Lord as the light to the nations. And on the other side, his vision of the branch of the Lord as a remnant of his holy, purified, worshiping people who are guided by his presence and protected by his grace. And in between, we see the realities of judgment upon the rebellious children of Israel and the corrupt men and haughty women of Zion. All of that is 
All of these are themes that are repeated throughout Isaiah and are key to understanding the Lord's vision. So what are our takeaways? God has not changed his redemptive purposes for his, the children of Israel. And Isaiah has not lost his hope for his people. And neither should we. We are included in his people. God's plan of redemption will be accomplished. That's his plan, and he's going to get it done. And just as sin brought curse into the, uh, on the earth, uh, causing it to yield its goodness only through great toil and sweat, the day is coming when the curse will be reversed. Messiah is both divine and human for a reason. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet born of a virgin, because the divinity and humanity of Christ is necessary for the completion of God's plan of redemption. That is full payment for the sin of humanity accomplished in the death of his son. Redemption is possible only by the sacrifice, by a sacrifice able to satisfy the law of God delivered by the grace of God. And that's good news. Righteousness, righteous judgment requires death. The wages of sin is death. The death of the Messiah provides the payment, the cleansing, the salvation for that. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God guarantees his unfailing presence for his people. And finally, God guarantees his unceasing protection as well. That's a boatload of um, that's a boatload of theology. It's a boatload of of um, I believe un begin beginning to understand the heart of God. That His judgment is not simply meant to banish and punish, but it is meant to bring about redemption. Glory be to his name. Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight. For the fact that, yes, we have this, this these bookends of hope that your, your vision for your people is indeed uh, from the beginning, Lord, a, a, a vision of people coming to your holy city, seeking you out. And Lord, that, that your righteous presence, your branch of, of salvation meets us in that place where we cannot, we cannot pay for our own debt, but rather, Lord, you pay the debt for us. We thank you as well, Jesus, that in all of that, you are bringing about your redemptive plan. We thank you, Lord, that nothing will stop that. 
That is our hope. That is our assurance. And it is rooted in who you are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray with great thanksgiving. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll tackle chapter five next week.